I have no idea what that company is, but I think that commercial's hilarious. And uh, it goes with what we want to talk about this morning. When you use the wrong tool for the job, you can have lots of problems very quickly. Like in, in the video, if you use the wrong tool for the right job, like even, it doesn't matter how badly a job needs to be done, how important it is, how vital it is, if you take after a good job with the wrong tool, sometimes, like in the video, you just don't get that job done. But other times, you actually create more problems by attacking a good job with the wrong tool than you would ever fix. Lately in our study through the book of Romans, um, the Apostle Paul, he's been saying some things about the law, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, God's law. He's been saying some things that were, were highly controversial in his day. A lot of people still don't like them, these concepts today, even among Christians. Um, Paul has said on multiple occasions now that we as Christians, we are no longer under the law. For a lot of people that didn't like that message. There's still a lot of people who really don't like that message. In fact, Paul has said in multiple ways, in multiple places in the, in the book of Romans, that the law, God's rules of righteousness, actually don't make our sin better. The law actually makes our sin worse. It does this a couple of different ways. By like the power of suggestion, there are certain things we're, when we are told not to do them, there's a part of us that just wants to do what we're told not to do. Then when we do them, it makes the sin like sinier. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. For example, if the deacons decided we had just overseeded some grass out here and the deacons decided it would be best if people didn't walk on that new grass. If you walked on that new grass, that would be bad, right? But if we came in here for a service and I gave the announcement, do not walk on the grass, and then you got up and walked out there and did the same exact act, walking on the same grass with your same feet, it would be worse, wouldn't it? What made the difference? The law, knowing the law. That's one way the law makes our sin worse. Well, because Paul's been saying such controversial things about the law, he knows a question is going to be coming up in the minds of his original readers. That question is basically this. Paul, do you think the law is bad? You sure are saying a lot of bad stuff about the law, Paul. Do you think God was wrong in giving the law? That's the question Paul is going to ask today um, rhetorically. Then he's going to answer the question. And he's going to say for sure, no, the law is not a bad thing. You just have to make sure you're only using the law for a job like you are qualified to do with it. Let's read our passage this morning. We're in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. 
And they read this way. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's our passage. And Paul starts with another rhetorical question in a series of them recently. So what shall we say then? Is the law sin? He answers that immediately and uh, decisively the same way he's answered the, the, the other questions recently. Absolutely not. Or more literally, may it never be or no way. And then Paul tells us what the law is good for. He says, certainly, I would not have known sin except through the law. Paul has, Paul has already said the law is not bad. He's going to say it a couple more times in the passage. But he has said that, that sin and the law have a very close relationship. Here Paul says, I think one of the primary purpose of the law for us, the way we can use the law correctly as a tool, is what Paul says here. It shows us our sin. I would not have known sin except through the law. Uh, we've, we've talked about this in the past in this study through Romans. The law is the straight edge that shows us how crooked we are. The law is the level that shows us we're off kilter. It's the plumb line that shows us we're tilted. That's the purpose of the law. You know, without the law, if we don't know the law, it's pretty easy to hold this kind of opinion of ourselves. I'm a pretty good person. Like I'm better than most people. I've never really hurt anyone. There's, here's a whole list of sins I don't sin that I know other people do. If we hold the law far enough away, we can convince ourselves, I'm good. However, if we get very close to the law, it will show us that's not, that's not true. Do you know, this is, this is one very common coping mechanism that people have. Uh, most people know uh, that there's, there's something wrong with me. Most people somewhere in the recesses of our hearts, we know there are things I do I hadn't ought to do. We know. So what we do is we stay away from anyone or anything that will let us know that what we do is wrong. That's why many, many people, even right here in the third district of Nebraska, like among the most conservative places on earth, uh, we still have many people who want no part of church, want no part of the Bible, 
want no part of uh, preachers like me, want no part of Christians, because I don't want anyone to tell me that some of the things I really need to change are things I really need to change. And if I stay away, sometimes that ignorance is bliss. It's a very common coping mechanism. Um, One thing I've learned being married is I would say the majority of women have a, have a special kind of mirror in their bathroom that guys you don't want any part of. Okay, usually it's on this little stand, all right, and they're usually round. And if you get that thing close to your face, guys, it will show you unspeakable filth underneath the, 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 your skin that you had no idea was there. Like the pores of your skin is like you could grow sandburrs in there. It's terrible. So me, I know that's probably true. I know I'm not going to do anything about that. I'm not doing a mask, right? I'm not doing, uh, there'll be no exfoliating going on here. So I would just soon not know. I stay away from that mirror, right? That's what we do with the law. Like I know I won't hold up, so I don't want to hear about it. Paul says, but that's what the law is for. It is the makeup mirror that will show us our dirty spots. It's uncomfortable. But that's its job. And so after saying that, the law is not bad. It's a valuable tool to show us our sin. Paul's going to give us just one example from his life where he learned the law showed him something was sin that he had no idea was sin that he was sinning. And it's coveting. It has to do with coveting. You know what coveting is? In case you don't, I looked it up. According to the Tyndale Bible Dictionary, coveting is the desire to have something for oneself that belongs to another. It's a craving or a passionate desire, or it can be defined also as an inordinate desire to have more. The 10th commandment in the 10 commandments is, thou shalt not covet. This is a bit of a rabbit trail, but consequently, why we're here, why is coveting even a sin? And what's so wrong with seeing that car someone else drives, the house someone else lives in, seeing that thick, luscious, flowing head of hair that someone else has, just an example, and desiring that for yourself? What's, what's so wrong with that? At its root, coveting, when I have that inordinate desire to have more, that is, um, it's being dissatisfied, it's discontentment with what God has seen fit to give me. Basically, when I am covetous, I'm telling God, you haven't been a very good, you haven't done a very good job being a sovereign God as far as I'm concerned. If God is sovereign and he is, and I don't have what I want, he must be doing something wrong. That's coveting. I'll try to bring this into human terms. You know this is wrong. You know it is. I'll give you a little exercise to try out. The next time you sit down to a good meal that someone has spent some time preparing for you, 
right? This could be today at lunch. This could be at, your, at someone else's house. This could be your own spouse. Spend some time making you a nice meal. Try this. Sit down, take a few bites, right? Chew them good and then say, you know, I really wish I was having the meal that, that Becky made for Ron today instead of this one. Would, would you ever say that to the person who made that meal for you? No. You know why? Because you know that would be, it would be a terrible thing to say. That when we're coveting, when we're covetous, that's what we are doing to God. I wish I hadn't. So this is not good enough. That's coveting. End of the rabbit trail. Here's the thing about coveting. The reason Paul brings it up is not to explain what it is, like I just spent time doing. Paul uses it as an example to say, like, if, if God hadn't told us, thou shalt not covet, I don't think there's any chance any of us would have ever known there's anything wrong with coveting. I don't even think we would know it's a thing. Would we? The only way we know it's wrong is because God told us coveting is wrong in the law. Does that make sense? So then Paul says, once, once God said, do not covet, thou shalt not covet, verse 8, sin seized that opportunity through the commandment. There's a cool Greek word there. Uh, do you know what a beachhead is? Um, like militarily speaking, it was D-Day last week, a few days ago, uh, the anniversary. When, we in, when the Allies invaded Normandy, we wanted to fight against Hitler and the Nazis, but we, like it's hard to fight a war against them when you're not on the continent. So we had to have a base of operations, a beachhead from which to launch other attacks. That's what Paul says sin does with the law. Sin takes a law like thou shalt not covet and holds that command up and uses it. Use it with sin within us as a, as a place to launch other attacks all over our hearts and minds and souls. Sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Um, when I was a kid, when I was in grade school, uh, on Wednesdays there was an after-school program at, at our church, and we would walk there. And in my hometown of Beloit, Kansas, if you leave the grade school and you head south, as soon as you uh, cross 8th Street there at the pump and pantry, uh, you cross the street and there was this sidewalk you walked across and this older gentleman, uh, the sidewalk that went through his property, there was a retaining wall and then his front yard was behind that retaining wall. I wasn't really a climber kind of kid, but uh, this old guy had signs on the two hackberry trees in his front yard and those signs said, stay off the wall. Guess what that made me want to do? Exactly what I did. I would get up on that wall and walk on the wall. I don't think I would have done it if the sign wasn't there. You know what that made me? A little jerk. That's what it made me. Now, was there anything wrong with his sign? Was he wrong to put the sign up there? No, it was his wall. He didn't want to fall down. There's nothing wrong with the sign. There's something wrong with me. And my heart saw that sign and suddenly had a desire to do what it had just been told not to do. 
That's how sin seizes the opportunity given by the law, by a commandment, and produces all kinds of wrong desires. And that's what Paul means when he says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. There are ways of sinning. We wouldn't sin if it weren't for the law. The law is still perfect. But I wouldn't struggle with self-righteousness and pride and thinking I was better than other people or more moral than other people because here's this list of sins that they sin that I don't sin. I wouldn't be able to sin that sin unless I had the law. The law is how I grade myself superior. The law is how I have these desires that say, God's holding out on me. My life would be more fun. Look at everyone else doing that. Here comes God always holding out on me. That is how sin within us uses the law as a beachhead to establish ground. And before long, my own heart is filled with all kinds of evil desires. And that, does that make sense? I hope so, because we have to understand that to understand what Paul says next. Paul's going to give us a bit of his personal testimony in verse 9. Verse 9 can be very confusing because it seems like Paul is contradicting things he's said previously. Verse 9, Paul says, and given what I just told you, I was once alive apart from the law, but with the coming of the commandment or when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now, it can seem like Paul just taught us the opposite of this. Paul says here, there was a time where I was alive apart from the law. If you know Paul's background, that is quite a statement. Paul was born a Pharisee. He was born into a family of Pharisees. And that means Paul's family was among the, the strictest observers of the law. Uh, elsewhere, Paul said, no one, no one obeyed the law better than me. So, How can Paul say he was apart from the law? That's one problem this verse brings up. Uh, And how can Paul say I was once alive apart from the law? Because Paul just taught us in the previous paragraph, we're not, we are born spiritually what? Dead. It's not like once we sin and suddenly we're born separated from God. So what's Paul saying here? Well, Paul's given us a personal testimony here. Paul says, and I I am convinced Paul's talking about his life as a Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul says, there was a time where once I was living my best life, I was alive. And Paul would say, I believed at one point I was alive because I I was righteous in God's eyes based on my behavior But there came a day I realized I was actually only felt that way because I was living apart from the law. How can Paul be living apart from the law as a Pharisee? From the the cradle, he memorized God's law. They talked about it when they got up, when they rose up, and when they lied down, and when they walked along the road. That was Paul's life. How could he say, I was apart from the law? Here's why. Remember a minute ago when I was talking about the makeup mirror? And if you get that makeup mirror really close 
It will show you what's really in your skin. And that's a coping mechanism. That's why a lot of people stay away from church. Listen, it's not just those folks who don't come to church that can make this mistake. Paul is telling us, there was a time where I, as a Pharisee, realized I just wasn't holding the mirror close enough. I thought I observed the law good enough that I was alive, but I was apart from the law. And one day, the commandment really came home to me. It really hit home. I held that makeup mirror of God's law up to my life and I could see the filth in the pores of my heart. And I realized how dead I actually was. That's what Paul says in verse 9. If you know Paul's story, this is conjecture on my part here, okay? But if you know Paul's story, I think I know how he responded when he got that law close enough to himself to where he could see my personal righteousness is a sham. I know how he responded. He dove in even deeper to the law. He became a more fervent defender of the law. If you know Paul's story, he was born, his Hebrew name is Saul. He was a town, from a town called Tarsus. And he became, I always jokingly call him, Saul the Christian hunter. He was going to eradicate Christianity from the Roman world, from the Jewish world. Here's why I think Paul had been working his whole life to have a righteousness of his own. To be good enough for God to love him. And in, somewhere in his heart, he knew that wasn't the reality. So he became more fervent and more militant about the law. And then here came these Christians. Most of them were Jews at first. Some of them were filthy Gentiles. Some of them were tax collectors. Some of them were prostitutes. Some of them were... And Paul said these people had the audacity to say they had been given by a free gift. The righteousness of God I've been working my whole life to get. And even in my heart, I know I don't have it. That's Paul's testimony. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, the best rule follower in the world, if I get that makeup mirror of the law close enough, it will show me the filth in my heart. And that is true for all of us. If we go through, I just want to take a few minutes to go through eight of the Ten Commandments. I want to hold the mirror of the law up to each of us. Because you might have walked in here this morning thinking, I'm a pretty good person. God probably likes me better than he likes whoever. Well, let's just see how we're doing. Commandment number one says, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. See, if you hold that commandment far enough away, it can seem like you're doing that. I'm like, oh, I've never done that one, right? I've never, I've never gone to, a, to some other sort of religious assembly. I've never bowed down to some kind of statue. I don't have any other... I'm, God, I'm not a polytheist. But if you get it close. Do you know in Ezekiel, God charged the leaders of Israel this way? He said, you have put up idols in your hearts. 
Have you ever pursued something in your life more fervently and passionately than you pursue God's glory? If so, like me, you're guilty under commandment one. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You ever use God's name uh, as a curse? If so, you're guilty under commandment three. Commandment five, honor your father and mother. Come on. We're guilty there. Commandment six and seven, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Hey, finally, we're getting somewhere I can stand up. If I hold those far, far enough away, I might be able to say, I've never done those. Tell Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've, you've seen it written. You've heard it said, uh, Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you've ever hated someone in your heart, if you've ever looked at someone with lust, you are guilty. You have the seeds of murder, seeds of adultery in your heart, and that's enough that you are guilty under commandment six and commandment seven. Commandments eight and commandments nine, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie. Thou shalt not Steal and lie. Ever take anything that didn't belong to you? Have you ever said something to someone else that you knew wasn't true, but you wanted them to believe it was true when you told them? That's called a lie. Commandment 10, we've already talked about. Thou shalt not come. How are you doing? How's your personal scorecard? That's just eight of the Ten Commandments. I could throw the other two in. You've broken those two. They just take more explanation, so I left them out. If you hold this thing up to your, to your heart, it will show you the filth and the pores in there. If we're honest, we're not righteous. We are. We're polytheistic, blaspheming, dishonorable, murdering, unfaithful, covetous, thieving liars. Other than that, we're fine. And anyone who thinks they're a good person, in God's eyes, just isn't holding the law closely enough. Paul already told us what the law is for. For us. It's to show us our sin. It's a good thing to hold it, get it right in there close. It's a good thing. The problem is we try to use the law for a job we are not qualified to use the law in order to do. Verse 10, so I found the very command that was intended to bring life brought death. I want to say this carefully. Can the commandments of God bring life? Hypothetically, the answer to that question is yes. If you or someone else could live perfectly according to the law, they would have eternal life through the law. The law is perfect that way. Perform the law perfectly, God will at your judgment say, you are righteous. Enter into eternal life. Problem is, we can't do that. But it's not anything that's wrong with the law. The law is a valuable tool. We just can't use it for that purpose. It's a little bit like a scalpel. That's what's on the screen up there. Imagine this is a, 
This is a wonderfully crafted scalpel. It's stainless steel. It's laser sharp, perfectly balanced, perfectly sterile, right? Is that a good tool? Yes. Any of us who have had surgery have had one of those used on us to good effect. But if this was a perfect tool, perfect scalpel, would you let me go to work on your gallbladder with this scalpel? No, why? There's nothing wrong with the tool. No, there's something wrong with me. I can't use it, even for its intended purpose. So in a sense, the law is to show us human righteousness. But if we try to use the law for our own righteousness, it will cut us up. It'll cut us up. It'll make us want to get on the wall and walk on the wall when we've been told don't walk on the wall. Or even if we hold out and don't walk on the wall, it'll make us think, look at that command. I didn't do that. At least I'm not some jerk like that Maxwell kid. I'm not a wall walker. It will cut us up if we try to seek our righteousness from the law. There's nothing wrong with the law, but there is plenty wrong with us. Because again, Paul said this already, for sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me. And through it I died. I think this is Paul saying, uh, the commandment deceived me. You know how it deceived the Pharisee Paul? It deceived him into thinking he could actually do it. And when he held it close, he saw it had cut him to pieces. And that's how Paul comes to this conclusion. Here's the answer to the, the original question. So then the law is holy and the commandment's holy. It's righteous. It's good. Paul, do you think the law is bad? No, it's holy and righteous and good. It couldn't be better. Nothing wrong with the law, but there's plenty wrong with us. So we have to make sure we don't use a good tool for the wrong job. And we have to make sure we don't try to approach a really good job with the wrong tool. For the last few weeks, here's what we've learned. Righteousness is a good job. If you're a note taker, get ready to write this piece of uh, theological wisdom down. Ready? Righteousness is a good thing. Like being good is better than being bad. Right? Make sure you write that down somewhere. It's good to obey. It's a good job. The problem is the law is a tool we're not qualified to use to achieve our righteousness. No matter how good at it we are, no matter how bad at, we, at it we are, we will cut us up. The result of trying to obtain my righteousness through the law and my obedience will either be failure over and over and over again and feelings of worthlessness and I'm a clown and I'm a fool and I'm the worst and God can't possibly love me. The only other option is self-righteousness. Look at how good I'm doing. Look at how good I am. Look how much better I am than that dude. And both of those things are disgusting. What Paul's been teaching us about is kind of the opposite. 
Paul's been asking this hypothetical question. Well, this grace thing where I'm just saved by grace through faith, does grace mean I can just sin and sin and sin no matter and with no worries? May it never be. Paul says, then you're using a good tool for a bad job. Grace was not given to you to allow you to sin. Right? That's like, it's like trying to reside your house with a wrecking ball. It's like trying to, uh, to crochet with a samurai sword. Right? You're taking something and using it for a purpose it wasn't given and it won't work. We've got to match a good job with the only tool. Our greatest need is righteousness. Because the Bible's clear, no one is getting into eternal life that God doesn't look at and say, this one is righteous. No one's getting in without righteousness. But if we try to use the law to get our righteousness, that, that mirror will show up on judgment day. And we will not pass. Grace. Grace has been given that sinners like you and me might have righteousness. It just has to be an alien righteousness that comes from someplace else. It comes from something called substitutionary atonement. God sent his only son, Jesus, to live. He was born under the law, lived under the law, and never sinned. He actually did it. So that when Jesus went to the cross, he was not being punished for any sins he had ever sinned because he never sinned any sins. What was happening was our sins were placed on him and he was the substitute punished on our behalf. And God said, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you know how we get eternal life just by believing? Because we get gifted his righteousness that we do not deserve. It's a free gift. That's called grace. Human righteousness is a good thing. But the only way we get it is through grace. We enter into a relationship with God through grace of Jesus, the grace of Jesus Christ. We live life with him. We walk with him in, again, eternal life, which is union. We confess our sins. We walk with him. And before long, we can look back and say, man, God has made me. I've become more obedient. But it was he that did it. I wasn't self-righteous. I didn't get this righteousness. He saved me. And he is making me, shaping me more and more into the likeness of his son. Righteousness is not only an important job, it is the most important job. We just can't get there using the tool of the law. We can only get there through the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Get it? Good, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for the law, Lord. It's good, it's perfect, it's holy, it's righteous. But boy, is it uncomfortable if we will hold it up to ourselves and peer into it. God, if there's someone who walked in here this morning and their attitude, their idea about themselves, I'm a, I'm a good person. God surely likes me because I'm a good person. I've done religious things. I've, whatever. God, I pray you would work on their hearts that they would hold your law up to their hearts to see what is in the pores, to get it good and close. 
That's what the law is for. It's the only thing we can use it for. But then, God, I pray you would impress on their heart just a desire for the righteousness you offer through faith. And I don't, I don't want the law to, holding the law close to someone to make them despair. I don't want it to make us self-loathe. But use it to make us desire the righteousness that comes through faith. We thank you for giving it to us through your holy, perfect, wonderful, beautiful son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.